This episode contains discussions of murder, bodily mutilation, and suicide that some people may find disturbing. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Charlie McLeod stood on the deck while his steamboat pulled into Vancouver. He'd had a long journey from the Northwest Territories in Canada in the foothills of the Mackenzie Mountains, just below Nahani Valley. In May 1908, Charlie had led a search party to find his missing brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod. He found two headless skeletons instead. Charlie believed his brothers had been murdered by Robert Weir, a Scottish ship engineer who financed the expedition. Weir had accompanied the McLeods on the trip. Charlie suspected the three men struck gold, and then Weir killed Willie and Frank for their shares. Charlie was now on his way to Vancouver to make sure he didn't get away with it. For a while, Charlie had tracked Weir's movements. As Charlie stepped off the boat into the bustling city, he felt closer to Weir than he'd ever been. His investigation eventually took him to a saloon on Water Street. Charlie entered the bar and spotted a barrel-chested, trail-weary man buying rounds of drinks for patrons. He had deep pockets. The man turned around, and Charlie saw his telltale blue eyes. This was his brother's murderer. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on Nahani Valley, a stunning remote river gorge in northern Canada with a history of inexplicable deaths, disappearances, and beheadings. Last time, we discussed the terrifying legends passed down by the indigenous people of the area, the Dene, and how, at the turn of the 20th century, the promise of riches lured men into its expansive wilderness anyway. This included Willie and Frank McLeod, Martin Jorgensen, and Phil Powers, all of whom lost their heads in the Mackenzie Mountains. This episode, we'll examine how and why these adventurers may have ended up dead and headless. At the time, officials suspected foul play, but the truth may be much more twisted. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. 
It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Around the time his brothers were found dead, Charlie McLeod arrived at a bar in Vancouver, Canada. He'd tracked down Robert Weir, the man he suspected killed his two brothers, Willie and Frank. As the story goes, Charlie persuaded the liquored-up Scotsman to sit down at a table with him. And before the night was over, Weir recounted his expedition with the McLeod brothers. Weir spoke about how indigenous tribes had harassed him and the McLeods throughout their trip. They'd returned to camp to find their food supplies ripped open. Gunshots would ring out from nearby trees, forcing them to abandon camps in a hurry. They were being hunted. Weir couldn't confirm their assailants' identities. The trio eventually discovered the bounty they were looking for, an enormous gold vein running through a granite wall in the valley. But after so many brushes with death, they decided to return later with more people and more weapons. They harvested a few samples and departed. During their return journey, Weir and the McLeods decided to split up, perhaps hoping to confuse their trackers. First, they divided whatever gold they had on hand. Then, the brothers headed east, and Weir headed west. According to the Scotsman, that's all he knew. Charlie listened to Weir's account, but he didn't buy it. His brothers hadn't had problems with indigenous people during their first two expeditions. In fact, when Charlie accompanied them in 1904, a group of Dene prospectors proved helpful. They showed Charlie and his brothers gold they'd found. Charlie suspected Weir might be using the indigenous people as a scapegoat for a murder he himself committed, but Charlie didn't have proof. After their encounter in Vancouver, Charlie reportedly lost track of Weir's whereabouts. His quest to bring his brother's killer to justice stalled for a bit. Then, around 1926, he learned Weir was living on a farm somewhere in central Canada. According to some accounts, the farm was located in Saskatchewan. Others claim it was in Viking, Alberta. But regardless of the exact location, most accounts agree on what happened next in this story. Charlie traveled to the farm to confront Weir. When Charlie arrived on the property, Weir apparently spotted him and ran into the barn on the property. And before Charlie could run in after him, he heard a gunshot. Charlie sprinted to the barn, but it was too late. Weir had shot himself in the head. According to Charlie, sparks from the gunshot ignited bales of hay in the barn, and the fire forced Charlie out of the smoking building. Weir was dead, and the truth about what happened to the McLeod brothers may have died with him. Perhaps Robert Weir's suicide was driven by guilt for murdering Charlie's brothers. However, there are some holes in this logic. As we mentioned previously, Willie and Frank's bodies were found with nuggets of gold-encrusted quartz on their persons. If Weir had murdered the brothers out of greed, he probably wouldn't have left those pieces behind. Weir was also a foreigner with no prospecting experience. The chances of him mining the gold alone and then getting out of the treacherous valley alive would have been extremely low. More importantly, the theory that Weir murdered the McLeod brothers fails to address the most perplexing question surrounding their deaths. What happened to their heads? If all Weir wanted was gold, he probably wouldn't have decapitated his companions and made off with their skulls. 
Not to mention, the man Charlie McLeod allegedly met in a bar, and who later died by suicide in a barn, might not have been weir at all. The Royal Northwest Mounted Police, also known as the Mounties, crafted a very different narrative of what happened to the expedition. Sometime in 1910, about two years after Charlie discovered his brother's bodies, a human skeleton was found three miles south of their final resting place. The Mountie who was working the McLeod case, Corporal Arthur H.L. Meller, determined the corpse belonged to Robert Weir. The information available is limited, so it's unclear how he arrived at this conclusion. But we do know the body didn't have any gold on it. Meller believed that Willie and Frank had either suffered a freak accident or starved to death. Weir then left the brothers to get help, but met an accidental death along the way. As for the McLeod skulls, it was theorized that a carnivorous animal chewed them off and carried them away. The predator only ate the heads because the rest of the corpses were covered in clothing and blankets. Now, a medical examination could confirm or deny this theory, but the few reports that have survived contradict one another. Some accounts mention that the vertebrae at the brothers' necks were in shards, suggesting their heads were ripped from their bodies with raw force. Other accounts mention that officials found hairs scattered beside the bodies as if they'd fallen off during decomposition. This would indicate that the heads remained on the corpses for a considerable amount of time after the men's deaths. Perhaps a few small animals devoured the heads, but this wouldn't explain why the third human skeleton was found unscathed or why the first two skulls disappeared. Naturally, Charlie McLeod rejected these theories. His brothers were both experienced outdoorsmen who knew how to feed themselves in the wild. He refused to believe they starved. He also saw his brothers' bodies and the decapitations looked precise, made intentionally using a sharp instrument like an axe. At the end of the day, there isn't sufficient evidence to prove either Charlie or Miller's explanation. But there is one big problem with both of them. Long after Robert Weir either died or went on the run, men continued to lose their heads in Nahani Valley. Coming up, two more men end up dead and headless, and what their homicides might tell us about the McLeods. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1908, Charlie McLeod discovered his brother's headless corpses in the Nahani Valley. He believed that Robert Weir, a wealthy Scotsman, murdered his siblings over gold they discovered on their expedition. Others, like investigators from the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, concluded that the McLeods died from a freak accident or starvation. But doubt was cast on both theories when more men turned up headless in the Honey Valley. As we discussed in our last episode, around 1910, a prospector named Martin Jorgensen went to the Nahani Valley in search of gold and never returned. Five years later, in 1915, Jorgensen's cabin was found burned to the ground with his headless corpse laying on the ground nearby. A gun found along with the body suggested he'd taken two shots at someone or something. Unfortunately, Mounties didn't visit the crime scene until the summer of 1916, perhaps due to inclement weather. After a year, pertinent clues were hard to come by. Officials quickly dropped the case due to lack of evidence. Author and Canadian historian Pierre Berton suggested Jorgensen simply stumbled into some bad luck with a bear. Following this line of thinking, then perhaps Jorgensen's cabin caught fire by accident. Then, as he tried to douse the flames, the fire's heat drew a bear out of the wilderness. Jorgensen then tried to outrun the animal and fired two shots in self-defense before getting mauled. The bear then ripped his head off with its jaws. As the animal trotted back into the forest, Jorgensen's cabin burned to the ground. In many respects, this explanation makes sense. Contrary to popular belief, fire doesn't deter bears. It may actually attract them. And bears have a history of killing humans in Northwest Canada. According to Yellowstone's National Park Rangers, bears also don't typically feed on human flesh. This might explain why Jorgensen's body was left intact. That said, the bear theory differed dramatically from the rumors that ran wild through the prospector community at the time. While gathered around fires and passing bottles of liquor, frontiersmen traded legends about how Jorgensen met such a grisly end. Many suspected Jorgensen had found the McLeod brothers' legendary prospect and harvested its fabled gold, and then was murdered by a rival. Or there could have been a copycat killer, at the time of Jorgensen's death, everyone in the Northwest Territories knew about the McLeod murders. A savvy killer could have recreated the circumstances to generate confusion. Prospectors weren't the only ones to speculate about Jorgensen's death. The indigenous Dene people suspected the warmongering Nahani tribe killed the frontiersmen. According to Dene legend, a Nahani man stumbled upon Jorgensen's cabin sometime in 1913. He found the quarters empty, but stocked with meat. The hungry man gorged himself on the moose flesh, seasoning it with what he assumed was salt. 
from a vat he found nearby. But he was actually seasoning his meal with crystalline strychnine, a toxin Jorgensen kept on hand to poison the animals he trapped. After eating his fill, the man keeled over and died. When Jorgensen returned, he found the Nahani dead in his cabin. Not knowing what else to do, he disposed of the body. But soon the Nahani's friends and family grew resentful over the death of their loved one, and they blamed Jorgensen. One night, a pair of tribesmen snuck out to Jorgensen's home to exact revenge. They murdered Jorgensen and burned his cabin to the ground. Now, this version of the story offers no explanation for why the murderers removed Jorgensen's skull. Perhaps the aggrieved Nahani simply felt a beheading was appropriate justice for their friend. Or, like other theories have suggested, maybe it was removed by a scavenging animal. Regardless, the idea that a murderer set fire to Jorgensen's cabin resolves a logistical problem with any theory which states his death was related to an accidental fire. If the blaze was an accident, the fire should have ignited the forest around it. But if someone intentionally set the cabin on fire, they could have stuck around long enough to extinguish it. This possibility that Jorgensen was murdered was the leading theory to explain his mysterious death. Prospectors likely gravitated to homicide for two reasons. First, it preserved the narrative that the McLeod mine was still out there waiting to be discovered. It offered them promise. Second, it meant the danger was tangible. If both Jorgensen and the McLeods died at the hands of men, their deaths were preventable. Future treasure hunters could protect themselves from a threat they understood. It wasn't as if the Nahani Valley was cursed by some inescapable malevolent force. Or was it? In 1932, Mounties discovered the remains of Phil Powers, a trapper working off a flat river in the Nahani Valley. All that remained of Powers' shelter was ashes. Although Powers' charred bones were found in the wreckage, his skull once again, was missing. In the end, investigators officially ruled Power's death an accident. They blamed a faulty stovepipe in his cabin for starting the fire. But Power's peers couldn't believe the experienced outdoorsman would be careless enough to construct a faulty stovepipe. Frontiersman Dick Turner once wrote about Powers, saying, If a man of that caliber could make a serious mistake in the bush... Then God help the rest of us. And they were right to question the theory that Power's death was an accident. Once again, they failed to explain the missing head. The Mounties who examined the scene also found that two ceramic kettles had melted together in the blaze. It's unlikely that an accidental fire generated enough heat to liquefy ceramic, especially a fire that left the surrounding forest untouched. An accident also doesn't explain why Powers' body was found inside his cabin. Unless he was fully incapacitated or dead when it ignited, he should have been able to escape the fire. As we discussed last episode, all of Powers' valuable belongings, including the furs he collected for more than a year, remained entirely undisturbed. The one thing missing from his stockpile? Gasoline. All of Power's cans were empty. And on the side of his supplies, someone nailed a piece of wood with a message penciled on it. Phil Powers, 
His finish, August 1932. This was well after the estimated date of Power's death, months after he was due to return to the lowlands to marry his fiancée, and right around the time his remains were discovered. The plaque harkens back to another handwritten message found near the site of the McLeod brothers' bodies. Charlie came upon a dog sled runner that read, We have found a fine prospect. In context, both signs can be seen as ironic warnings. The McLeods and Powers both enriched themselves off the resources in the Honey Valley, and they died shortly after they presumably obtained them. Charlie claimed that the message on the dog sled runner looked like it was in one of his brother's handwriting, but he could have been mistaken. Perhaps an unknown killer wrote both messages, not a fellow prospector or trapper, but someone or something whose only purpose was to protect the valley. A force that viewed men like Willie and Frank McLeod, Martin Jorgensen, and Phil Powers as a catastrophic threat. Coming up, the supernatural forces that may live in the Nahani Valley. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EB. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now back to the story. Nahani Valley has always had a reputation for peril. But by the 1930s, four different frontiersmen were found dead, headless. The danger was no longer a rumor, legend, or gut feeling. It was a pattern of violence. Though officials claimed the deaths were accidental, many settlers and frontiersmen blamed the murders on the reclusive Nahani tribe. A lack of information about the group fueled wild rumors and bolstered their already fearsome reputation. At the time, the indigenous Dene people reportedly told white settlers that the Nahani should be avoided at all costs. Some suspected the Nahani were related to the ancient Naha tribe, who, according to Dene legend, delighted in torturing and robbing their lowland neighbors. After the McLeod murders, investigators from the Royal Northwest Mounted Police attempted to follow up on these rumors. They scoured the river valley for any sign of the tribe, but every time they got close, the indigenous people retreated further into the wilderness. Without tangible evidence to back up their suspicions, the Mounties eventually directed their time and resources elsewhere and gave up. To some, the Nahani's elusive behavior was an indication of guilt. But there's actually no hard evidence to prove the tribe had any hand in the deaths of Powers, Jorgensen, or the McLeod brothers. In fact, most reliable records of the Nahani paint them in a positive light. 
During an 1823 expedition, an explorer named John McLeod and a crew he put together ran into a group of 14 Nahani tribesmen. John's name is a pure coincidence. He had no relation to Willie, Frank, Charlie, or the rest of their family. To avoid confusion, we'll refer to him by his first name. John was traveling with a few members from the Slavey tribe who were initially reluctant to approach the Nahani. But ultimately, his team and the Nahani exchanged food and gifts. In fact, the meeting went so well, they made plans to meet again the following year. After his second exchange, several Nahani reportedly accompanied John down the mountain to Fort Liard. He guided them through the settlements, giving them their first taste of their world. More than a century later, in the winter of 1929, a frontiersman named Raymond Patterson went camping alone in Deadman Valley, not far from where the McLeods were murdered. This was after rumors abounded that the Nahani killed the brothers and later Martin Jorgensen as well. As he camped, Patterson thought he was the only living soul for miles until one day he saw a shadow on his floor. He looked up and saw a Nahani leader standing in his doorway. Before Patterson could move to defend himself, eight other Nahani joined the man in the doorway. Outnumbered and terrified, Patterson invited them inside for tea. Luckily, one member of the party spoke English. They accepted. As Patterson heated the water for tea, the interpreter explained that the group was on their way back from a hunting excursion. They drained Patterson's teapot to the dregs and soon departed. The frontiersmen mused on how little the men resembled the fearsome Nahani of legend. Then, a heavy thud outside made him jump. When he went outside, a gift was waiting for him. The Nahani left a parcel of moose meat, an expression of gratitude for his hospitality. These two encounters seemed to contradict the rumors that the Nahani were hostile, but they only provide limited context. After John McLeod's trip, Many more white settlers, trappers, and prospectors swarmed into Nahani Valley. This influx could have inspired more territorial behavior, even incited violence. But once again, there's no hard evidence. Due to a lack of information, we don't know who exactly the Nahani were. They were so physically removed from Dene and settler society that Nahani could have been an umbrella term for all high-altitude tribes, rather than a single community. Historian W.D. Addison theorized that because the mountainous land was so treacherous and unpredictable, it couldn't support a permanent population. Perhaps the Nahani tribe wasn't a tribe at all, but an amalgamation of nomadic indigenous people moving through the area. This could explain why reports of the Nahani's temperament vary so greatly. It also means these nomads probably weren't the ones responsible for the headless frontiersmen. People traveling through an area, even an area they visit regularly, don't typically feel a sense of ownership over it. It's difficult to understand the motivation for itinerant tribes to kill visitors. All four men were beheaded after harvesting resources from the valley. Two shelters were burned, with the fires carefully contained. The possibility that different tribes managed to execute such similar crimes seems very unlikely. Ultimately, the question of what role, if any, the Nahani played in the beheadings will never be answered. They're not around anymore. 
As far as researchers can tell, the final members died in 1929, victims of an influenza epidemic presumably brought on by white settlers. And they weren't alone. Many more tribal cultures, languages, and ways of life disappeared as white settlers and their diseases swarmed into indigenous territory. So perhaps the Nahani Valley itself was the culprit. It acted as a last stand against that influx of European invaders. When the indigenous people couldn't protect themselves, the valley fought back. There are many Dene legends about Nahani Valley. Bloodthirsty tribes, vicious prehistoric animals, human-ape hybrids. Some aren't so specific, but they all allude to a feeling of evil a creeping dread that wells up inside everyone who sets foot inside the valley. According to visitors, the most tangible evidence of this evil is the wind. When the breeze blows through its craggy peaks, the valley seems to vocalize. It wails, groans, and shrieks, as if to ward off those seeking to steal its treasures. Pierre Berton wrote of his own experience in the valley, saying, The wind began to whine, almost like a living thing. The banshee wail made her hackles rise, as this was, without a doubt, the spirit sound so many men talked and whispered about. The wind didn't just create hair-raising sounds, it manipulated the land. Berton's group found unnatural sculpted mounds of snow, as if a giant hand had shoveled the flakes aside. They also came upon massive trees laying on their sides, fully uprooted, as if they'd been plucked like tiny weeds. We'll never know how four of its travelers lost their heads or whether the area is truly home to an evil spirit. But to this day, those who venture into Nahani Valley fall asleep to the sound of wind howling in their ears, perhaps hinting at an ancient evil we'll never understand. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Nahani Valley, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Legends of the Nahani Valley by Hammerson Peters extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.